0: Regularly, our lives are pretty perplexing. We don't always understand what God is is doing. That's an important question. Could it be that God's doing something that we didn't anticipate, didn't plan for? Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, as we gather now around your word, we thank you that you're in charge of our lives and not us. We recognize that among us, there are many wounds, many hurts, many question marks, many complications, many perplexities, but a sovereign God who is over all, knows exactly what he's doing, knows exactly what he wants for our lives. And so I pray, Father, that we would cooperate with what you want to do and not be in conflict with it. Would you please take our hearts today and cause them to be inclined to receive and welcome the word of God? Father, would we not um, try to explain away or make excuses for our lives, but in fact, invite you to come in and cleanse us, to purge our lives, to offload from our day-to-day lives the things that are crowding you out, that we might have a, a new kind of heart, a new kind of mission, a new kind of passion and love and worship for you, I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. It seems to me that sadly, and I think you'll agree with me, that there are a lot of Christians... Who find themselves very stressed, trapped, frustrated, angry, critical, have a bad attitude, joyless, lacking in a desire to to hunger after the things of God. And I wonder if the reason for these things is not because of the circumstances that have come into our lives, but rather the numbers of things we have allowed in our lives that are crowding out our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. All of life can be boiled down to two things. Obeying God or disobeying God. That's as simple as it is. That, that really is how life unfolds. We either worship Him or we dishonor Him. And all of that can be distilled to one thing, Trust. Do we really trust God or do we have some reservations in our lives? Do we build things around our lives because we're not really sure that we can completely trust God? And the truth is you either trust God or you don't. And um, we, I, I, would, I would think I'd be in safe territory this morning to say that within the, the gathering here of the family that at least, at the very least, we are intellectually predisposed toward Christianity. But Christianity, the reality of Christianity, is about trust. It is about completely throwing our lives at the mercy of God and trusting Him completely with our lives. I wonder if we're there. Well, Israel, at the uh, time of the judges, didn't trust God. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to... Judges chapter ten. Uh, they were um, they had put their trust in their own judgment. We know that in the things that they could see, they had chosen other things to trust, and they were at it again. And um, this morning we're going to look at a, a lengthy text. I'm not going to read all of it, but it's the story of Jephthah, a deliverer that God chose to rescue his people who are once again cycling into a very bad, bad time. And uh, I want to uh, pick up the text at Ju- uh, Judges chapter 10, verse 6, and uh, read that chapter and a little bit into chapter 11, and then we'll pick out some things in the text, because I want to share three things with you this morning from this text. But let's start at verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's a moniker we never want to have over our own lives. But quite frankly, if we're, if we're honest, if we're truthful, from day to day it could be said of us again, Rick did evil in the eyes of God. And they, it says here they served, it explains what this evil is. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon. Uh, The gods of Moab, the gods of of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And the idea of serving, of course, is is to actually give over your life. It's to to worship. It's to to pay homage to. It's it's to obey. Uh, When you're serving something, you're worshiping. You're obeying it. You're trusting in it. This is what they were doing. And, And then it says, because the Israelites forsook the Lord, because That's exactly what they did. They gave themselves over to other things and no longer served him. He became angry with them. And here's a very, very um, uh, distressful statement. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. So they decided to embrace the idols of the culture and God in turn gives over ownership of his people to the nations around them. A very distressful reality. And it says, who that year shattered and crushed them, and then listen to this, for 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan to fight against Judah, or sorry, east side of the Jordan and Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah Benjamin in the house of Ephraim and Israel was in great distress. What do you do when you're in great distress? Well, don't you call out to the Lord? Of course you do. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We have sinned against you, forsaking God and forsaking the Baals. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites... And the Manoanites or the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods. So I will no longer save you. But wait a second. That's God's job. That's why He exists, doesn't He? Doesn't He exist to save us and get us out of jams? Isn't that, isn't that why He's there? Go and cry out, he says, to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Now when the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tov, where a group of adventurers, by the way, a group of adventurers is not what you think adventurers are, it's a group of ragamuffins, a... A group of troublemakers, a group of, of crazy people. It's just like a church. We're a gathering of adventurers. We're a group of adventurers, a group of ragamuffins, a group of cast-offs that God has by grace brought together into his family. And they gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of, of Tav, which, by the way, is the land of good. Come, they said, be our commanders so we can fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? We've heard that before. Let's stop right there. And um, this is the reading of God's word. And um, I want to make some, some commentary here. I, I, I want to point out to you that while we're reading about Aram and Sidon and Moab and Ammon and Philistia and Egypt and all those kinds of countries, what we're really reading here today is about Canada. I want to propose to you that the application of this text is so stunningly related to our particular situation. Now, it, it was almost mind-boggling. When I took the time to study this text all over again, I realized, wow, you know what? This is come to life right now. This, this is us. This is a message so directly to us. So don't allow it, the application of this, to, to, be, um, to, be, for, to be distracted about the application of this. It is so uh, apropos to us. It is a watershed time for us. This is about the great crisis of trust in God's people. And it is, um, it is a contemporary message to all of God's people. Here's what happened at the time of Jephthah, but it feels so familiar when you look at this. And I would suggest to you that, that it is possible for each of us and for God's people. And I, I would think that, that even with our, in our own church family here, that um, there is a crisis of trust among us. And, and I want to point out a couple of uh, ideas where you might be staggering a little bit under the weight of, of the uh, things that are in your life. You may be in a trust, trust crisis if, one, you don't think Trusting God will get you what you want. And so compromise seems like a more comfortable way to coexist with those in conflict with Christ. You're not so certain, you're not so sold on the idea that all out total commitment kind of trust to God is gonna be comfortable in your life. And so to... um, find a place of comfort in a culture at war with Christ, you've settled into a comfortable kind of compromise and embraced the things of the world in such a way as it's crowding out your relationship to be committed to Christ. Secondly, you might think that God can't use you for a really great call to trust. Your unlikely pedigree or your lack of preparation or insecurities have paralyzed you to this point. I mean, Jephthah is a very unlikely leader. He's not the kind of person that necessarily would be picked out. He's the kind of guy who got kicked out of his family. He's the kind of guy who has a a very unusual childbirth. He's not really part of the family. His mother's a prostitute. He's thrown out of the family, he's rejected, he's despised, he's scorned. He's the kind of person that God picks and brings into his family. He's you or me, but he's unlikely. And many of us think that our our background, our heritage, our our history, who who we are, how we were raised is... is, uh, Produces insecurities in our lives. We think God could never call on me for a great act of trust. You're exactly the person God wants to call. You may be in a trust crisis if you think you have to buy God's favor with your misery because you don't really trust God to do good the way you define good. We're going to see this later on in Jephthah when he buys them off with a vow. And then you become a grace curmudgeon. You know what a grace curmudgeon is? I can never believe that, that God would just graciously love me. I, I can never believe that I can live a life where I can be simply um, living and dwelling in the grace of God. I feel like um, that that God is a hard taskmaster, and, and if I crawl and grovel enough, and if I work hard enough, that maybe, just maybe, I could inch out some of God's favor, and so we become grace curmudgeons in our lives, angry, bitter, unhappy, joyless, not hungry for the things of God. Listen, I want to tell you something, the price of God's favor is not your misery, it is your total complete trust in God. So what to do about this whole reality of being enculturated and then struggling to trust God? You bought into the blended blending into the culture, you've taken the approach that if you can't beat them, let's just join them. Well, here's some of the problems because um, we want to look at how this happens in our lives. How, how could God's people continue to cycle into serving idols, serving Baals, serving the Astras, serving the gods of the cultures around them? How do they keep doing this? By the way, um, it is so easy uh, to just keep adding ideas and things that we see in the culture to our lives. We become too busy, too busy for God. We become too financially pressured we can become too stressed we become there's no margin left in our lives and the desperation in our lives gets even worse because because in adding all of this stuff to our lives and crowding out a relationship with God and losing our confidence and losing our sense of trust in God he uh, he gives us over to the ownership of the things that we've been embracing in our lives The desperate moment here in the text is God giving his people over. He says he sold them over to be owned by others. And whatever you're owned by, you must obey. Becomes the boss of your life. So are you owned by the Lord or are you owned by all kinds of other things today? Because Jesus Christ bought us at a very costly price not with gold and silver but with his precious blood that we might belong to him total heart mind soul body strength he bought all of us he bought everything that we are and we have been buying everything that the culture buys and adding it into our lives, bit by bit. And one day we realize, it's a really crowded relationship I've got going on with the Lord. I'm related to all kinds of other things. I'm beholding to all kinds of other things. And God simply sold me over to all kinds of other things. And I want to say to you this morning, beloved, that the first thing that needs to happen in many of our lives is we need to get re-owned by God alone. Rather than preserving the values of our distinctiveness, which makes us the compelling alternative to the world. We are manufacturing a trust crisis in our lives by our own choice to embrace their securities and their sensualities. And God wants us free from that. That's what they were buying into here. Listen, uh, le- let me explain to you that, that um, we, we live in a very risky neighborhood here in Canada. You, you live in a very risky, you know, we think of the people living in Syria and the people living in Egypt and, and the people living in, in, um, in Iraq are, are living in a very, very risky neighborhood. I'm telling you, we're living in an incredibly risky neighborhood in Canada. You maybe haven't been noticing, but there are a number of signals that we should be concerned about how risky the situation is for us. And why trust is eroding from our lives, trust in God alone. Listen, we are in this culture driven by an evolutionary worldview. Front and center, every facet, every nook and cranny of this culture is driven by an evolutionary worldview. If you don't, um, if you're not noticing it, I'm telling you that it explains why everybody is saying to you, wait a second, all these values and virtues and things that are right, they change over time. That's why people can say to you, what, are you crazy? You mean to tell me you go to church on Sundays? You live like that? This is the year 2014. You must have lost your mind. Things have changed. That was the dark ages. That was the old days. Listen, that's an evolutionary worldview. When people look at you and say, you have this, the sexual values? This is 2014. Get with it. That's an evolutionary worldview. And it's pressed on our minds and the minds of our kids over and over again. This is 2014. They might have done that 10 years ago. It might have done that 20 years ago. It might have had the kind of morality 60 years ago. But that's dark ages stuff. We're more enlightened now. We live differently now in 2014. That's evolutionary worldview. And that's the fruit of it in our culture. Not only do we live in an evolutionary worldview, evolutionary-driven worldview uh, culture, but we're enveloped absolutely enveloped in the worship of sex and sexual freedoms it's gone completely insane what started in the 60s has gone to seed in ways that we could have never ever imagined and it is foisted upon us i'll come back to it in a moment we're enamored in this canadian culture with exotic religions I don't know if you know this, but in the Durham public school system, the month of October was declared Islam month in our own public school system. I'm just waiting for Christian month. When's that coming? Is that coming in December? Are the teachers going to be allowed to say Merry Christmas in December in the Durham public school system? I sincerely doubt it. But they were supposed to bow to Allah this month. We are addicted to material comforts. That's the culture we live in. And here's what happens. Here's what the text, here's what God warns us about. He says the gods of the culture assert themselves on God's people, and then God's people view them as possible alternatives or possible options that we allow to come into our life And now these idols that have now taken up residence in God's people's lives, now start to become aggressive and start to become enslaving. And once these gods of the culture become enslaving in our lives, then the culture itself now is empowered to further oppress God's people. Do you see the progression here? It starts with a culture at war with the things of God, And the uh, idols that they worship. And then God's people seeing those as optional in their lives. Bringing them in. Those idols now oppress us and enslave us. And now because we become powerless. Because God has sold us over to whatever we wanted. Now because we become powerless. The culture at odds with God is now so powerful. That God's people start to be shattered. And oppressed. And distressed. And that's where we're at. And it is going at exponential, light speed around us. Some of you are still saying, well, that's all conceptual, but I'm not sure. Talk to me about the specifics. Well, let me talk to you about some specifics. Armed with surrendered power and powerless opposition, here's what the culture is doing. The idol of sexuality is the... It and materialism are the two most powerful idols in our culture. The idol of sexuality is manifesting itself in ways we could have never imagined. Just a couple of weeks ago in the city of Houston, the mayor of Houston is a lesbian. And she ordered the pastors in the city of Houston to turn over all of their sermons to her that had anything to do with teachings on homosexuality. Now, I want to tell you that if that starts to happen in the Bible Belt of America, do you think for one second that it isn't going to be soon that the mayor of Oshawa is asking me to turn my sermons over to him or her? Do we, are we not paying attention to the Trinity Western University fiasco, the reality of their law school? Is it not completely bizarre that now their graduates from their law school cannot be received into any law society of any province in this country. And why? Because our country is saying we don't want lawyers who believe in biblical marriage. There's a city, a a small city called, um, and I'll probably get it wrong, but uh, Hélène will correct me because it's a French city in Idaho called Coeur d'Alene. Idaho where the city council is forcing ministers to preside over same-sex marriages and we all know about our own Ontario elementary education whereby they are rewriting the 1998 sexual education curriculum which was already bowing to the idol of sexuality and rewriting it to actually worship sexuality and while that's going on the Durham public school system has forbid children, Christmas child, Samaritans purse, gather or, or, or um, a, a pro- projects in any of the elementary schools in the Durham public system, allegedly because some Islamic people complained. So what are the little children going to do when they don't get their Christmas boxes? The idol of exotic religious ideas is manifesting itself in Canadian youth who are drawn into radicalized enslavement. How many more soldiers in Canada or policemen are we going to have shot because of the idol of exotic religious ideas? And then there's the idol of material comforts. While many of us have been able to wiggle out of the idol of sexuality and wiggle away from the idol of religious, exotic religions, most of us can't wiggle out of the idol of materialism. How many of God's people are totally free financially to pursue a mission that God has on his heart for us? How many of us are servicing so many things Financially. So many, gods of, so many gods of the culture that we no longer find ourselves available if God taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, here's, an, here's a ministry project. Here's, here's an investment in mission for you. It says that the people... We're in great distress. And so what do you do when you're in great distress? We already talked about that. You call out to the Lord, right? Come and save me. Get me out of this distress. Because, you know, you've got all, this, you've got all these things that you own. And, and uh, you're relying on them. And you've, you've set your sights on the, on the uh, securities and sensualities of the culture. And now your life goes into a nightmare moment. Your marriage goes into distress or your children, something happens with your children or your own life physically, health-wise goes in. And so what do we do? Of course we do. We call out to God. Oh, God, please help me. Save me. Get me out of this bad time. And of course, we expect that God will be there whenever we want him. And he'll immediately jump uh, on his white stag horse and, and, and gallop off and save us out of our trouble. And that's exactly what Israel thought. We can go out, we can worship other gods, we can gather things around us, we can worship the gods of sex, we can worship the gods of exotic religions, we can worship the gods of materialism, and when we get into trouble, when we get into a pinch, we'll just call on God, and he'll have to help us. And God said, no, I'm not saving you. You've been serving other gods, why don't you run to them? Why don't you let all the things that you own in your house take care of your health? But God, that's your job. You're there to save us. He says, no, I'm not saving you. And it, and, and it shocks us. But maybe, maybe that's where you are right now. God doesn't seem to be answering your prayers. You don't hear him. He doesn't hear you. Seems like it. Nothing's changing. He's not helping you. You've got a crisis going on and nothing's going on with God. So what happens? They come back to God a second time. And they say, oh God, we have sinned. We have... Um, Go ahead, they said to to God, go ahead and do to us whatever you want, but please rescue us. And then they went one step further. It says in the text, and then they got rid of their idols. And then it says, and God saw their misery and had compassion on them. What's the difference? The first time, they just wanted to get out of trouble. Just wanted out of a pinch. Just wanted out of an uncomfortable situation, but they weren't prepared to get rid of their idols or have God in charge of their lives. They were just going to cycle back in. God, get me out of trouble. God gets you out of trouble, and then you're back into the same way. The, The difference was, they said, Oh God, we have sinned and we realize that you are Lord of glory. You are the one over us. Do with us whatever you want. We deserve it. You brought us into your relationship with you by grace anyway. It wasn't that we deserved it. So do to us what you want. And they got rid of their idols to demonstrate the seriousness of their repentance. And then God had compassion on them and rescued them by sending them a deliverer. So let's look at this deliverer quickly. Jephthah. We need to get reowned, owned and the second we need to get recycled. Look at, look at chapter 11. Look at what's going on here. By the way, let me just say something about warfare and the whole idea of this text. The, the battle that we're in This is not about ethnic battle. This is not an ethnic conflict. The the warfare we're in is not with people. The warfare we're in is not with flesh and blood. The warfare that we're in is principalities and powers in high places in darkness. It's not the people. The people are dupes to the darkness. The the people have been sold a false story. The, The people around us have been rejected by their families and oppressed and abused. They're not our problem. They're not our enemy. They're our mission. And so Jephthah comes along, and and Jephthah, Jephthah becomes the perfect foil for this, the perfect leader, because he was rejected and despised and cast out of his family. And he could feel deeply the hurts of the people around him, he knew what it was like to be rejected. And I want to submit to you that 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 the key reality for God to use you and is to have been to be deeply touched by the things of God. It's no accident that, that God chooses Jephthah, not because Jephthah is any, any uh, uh, amazing individual or has strength in himself. In fact, he has a, as you see, a questionable birth. Why is Jephthah chosen in this text? He's chosen because he represents. You you start to hear the language of Christ. In him, Christ, the one of questionable birth, Christ, the one who was rejected and despised of his family, Christ, the one who gathered a, follower, a, a, a following of adventurers around him. And there's this echo of things yet to come. The, the people that God chooses to, to rescue are people who are deeply touched by his heart. We, we need to understand, as C.S. Lewis correctly stated... God uses the unlikely because hardships often prepare ordinary people for extraordinary destiny. In a God mission, He doesn't want to use people who are able to rely on their own strength. He, he doesn't want people to say, Hey, God, I got it. You know, God gives you a, a mission. You say, God, I got it. I'm all over it. You can count on me. You don't need to pop back in. I'll take care of this. No problem. He's not looking for a church that says, hey, we have so many resources, we have so much strength, we have so much talent, we have so much giftedness, that God, we can take care of this on our own, so thanks very much, but we don't really need you. Listen, God is gonna continue to press into your life. Mission realities that continue to go beyond the scope of your strength and your abilities to the point where we have to say, if God doesn't show up, we're going down. We gotta look at each other, and after these ministry realities come to pass, we can't be looking at each other saying, wow. Didn't we take this on? Didn't we do an amazing job? Weren't we we amazed? We have so many gifted, so many talented people. When we come together and put our mind to doing things, they really turn out well. Listen, God's not looking for that. He's looking for us to look at each other after a ministry assignment is accomplished and go, wow, if God didn't show up, we were going down. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for a people who are deeply touched by the heart of God. You want to know why your kids are driving you crazy? Because God's kids are driving Him crazy. You know, you not get, listen. God wants you to. God wants you to feel what He feels. It, it changes your life when you finally feel God's heart deeply. You know, as a father, I I think, man, it, yes, God, I I get it. I get how you feel. I understand now. I understand better how how poor a father I've been or or how how much, uh, how frustrating it is to have your children be so annoying. I don't often say that. You've got some eyes staring at me and I'm saying, "When, when have you ever felt that way? Here's Jephthah, despised, rejected, forsaken understands the heart of God, to be used by God, to be recycled after you're finally re-owned because you've got rid of your idols, you need to be recycled. Uh, You have to feel God's heart deeply. And God will take you there. The hardships will come. The frustrations will come. And then finally, We need to revisit the truth. Um, We're mostly shocked when we get to this text and we read about Jephthah. It says in verse 29 of chapter 11, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and we all breathe a collective sigh of relief, don't we? God has finally shown up. Oh, thank, thank goodness. Jephthah, it's going to be all right now. And then the next thing he does is verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. We're going like, what is this? And then we read down, we find out um, the Lord, then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. And When Jephthah, verse 34, returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but who? His daughter, dancing to the sound of the tambourines. Oh, dad, I'm happy to see you home, singing him home and all that. And except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw, saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. I, and we're like, what in the world? What is, what is going on here? And we think, oh, that's so foreign to us that we would never, ever do something like that. I mean, what was Jephthah thinking? Why did he do that? God, the Spirit of God came upon him to be a great conqueror. And the first thing he does is an act of distrust. I mean, God comes upon him with power, chooses him to be the leader, the judge, the deliverer. And the first thing he does is thinks, I got I to make a deal with God, I got to buy God. In order for this to to, to make sure that this victory is secure, I've got to pay God off. What in the world would possess him to do that? Lack of trust. He had spent so much time trusting in idols around him, making contracts with idols, paying idols off so they might favor him. He'd spent so, t- so much time being a mob boss himself, leading this band of adventurers, that he had now placed his own character into the character of God and said, God must be like me. Before I would ever give somebody something, I would expect them to pay me off. And so in a, in a miserable act of... Mistrust. He offers the first thing that's going to come out of the door of his house when he comes home. Now, some people have said, Oh, he was thinking an animal would come out. Wait a second. Except for a few of you, animals don't live in houses. No, he was probably thinking a servant might come out. And he comes home and his one and only child meets him, his legacy. And he promised God he would sacrifice. Now, at, at multiple levels, this is disastrous. Number one, he doesn't know the word of God. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, throughout the scriptures, God detests human sacrifice. That was the, that was the, uh, the practice of the, of the gods, the, the nations around him. Here's the deal. We regularly believe that if we really trust God, it must come with a cost, a price. It must come with some sort of misery. That's why we don't want to go to mission conferences or we don't want to come to to challenging speakers because they might say something that will will challenge our lives and, and, we'll, and God will make us miserable because we really believe that if I totally trusted God, surely he would make my life miserable. He'll send me somewhere I don't want to go to somebody I don't want to see. Some crazy preacher will come in from Liberty University and he'll throw a towel on the floor and he'll, he'll invite me to come down and pick up that towel and now I'm going to have to take a pie over to the neighbor I don't like. God's going to make my life miserable. And so we're really convinced that That the way to really gain God's favor is the more miserable I am, the more favor I'll get from God. What Bible did we ever get that from? Jesus said, I've not come to give you a miserable life. He said, I've come to give you what? An abundant life. He's graced us. Listen, we didn't come into his family because we deserved it, because we were groveling around. We came into his family by grace. He didn't have to bring us into his family. He brought us into his family because he loves us and he grows us because he loves us. It's not about clawing our way up some sort of mountain hoping that if I'm miserable enough and if I work hard enough, that maybe, just maybe, God will let me into heaven. Listen, that's what your unbelieving family and friends think. And they're banking all of eternity on it. That's who they think God is. They think if my good works are good enough, if I just bargain with the mob boss God, the big guy in the sky, then maybe he'll let me into heaven. And Jephthah, because God wanted us to know about this, teaches us the lesson that God needs to be trusted alone. We don't bargain with God, we don't buy God off, we don't set a contract with God, we trust God. He had the Holy Spirit, he had all he needed. Bypassing grace and legalistically treating God like a mob boss is killing the mission of the church and Christ must be trusted, not paid off. So we'll just skip to the end, it's totally going to be about trusting God. Beloved, listen, if you can't trust God, if I can't trust God, I need to know today. I mean, seriously, we need to stop fooling around. If you can't totally trust God with your life, then go do something else with Sunday morning. It makes no sense to be here. There are a lot of other things we could be doing on a Sunday morning. There are a lot of other things we could be doing with our life. If you don't trust God, then cash it in. Don't, don't try and have God and all kinds of other things to prop up your trust too. God wants to be trusted alone. But if you can trust God and I know you can then what are you going to do differently in your life after today? What changes need to be made in your life? You can't have God and everything else. It's God, and God alone. And so whatever you are, have added around you that says, I need this because I can't trust God to give it to me, is an idol in your life. And it's time. It's time that we, instead of asking God to get us out of pinches, finally come clean with God and say, oh God, Do with me what you want. You're my Lord. You're my King. And I'm getting rid of everything that gets in the way of that relationship. That's the place we're at in this congregation. Let me just close with this statement. We had Dr. Wheeler here last week. He's one of my favorite professors. That's why I wanted to share him with you. But I can tell you that this is not a guy who tells you, he just tells you, exaggerates things. This is a guy who's a straight shooter. Did, do you, not, did you not see that in his life? He, he lives what he says. I can tell you, he, he all the way to the uh, airport, the, the poor limo driver, 3.30 in the morning, got the gospel all the way from Whitby to the airport. And when he gets there, he texts me at 4.30 in the morning, which my, my phone goes off, I'm like, Wheeler, you... Come on, man. He texts me, and I hear ding on my phone. I wake up at 4.30, and I look at it because I, I thought if, he, if the limo d- driver didn't come, I told him, listen, make sure you call me. I'll, I'll make sure you get to the airport. So I'm thinking, I bolt out of bed. I got to get Wheeler to the airport. And I read the text, and he says, all right, brother. I just talked to a girl all the way to the, the airport. Gives me her name, her phone number, and all that. She could be interested in Christ. You got to follow up on her. I'm like, Dave. So... <laughs> So um, I put it away, and, and uh, he calls me the, right away in the morning. Hey, you know, check up on her. So I'm working on this. But, but anyway, he came in here, and he said to me this. He said, listen, I get around to churches. I want, to know, I want you to know, he said, there's something special going on at Calvary Baptist Church. He said, there's some move of God that is unusual. And we are, he said, we are poised At a moment where God can take us into something that would be beyond our comprehension in terms of mission and reaching out. And I I absolutely believe that. I mean, I didn't, he was speaking to my heart. He was was ministering to my spirit. We were agreeing with each other. I, I think that. Don't you think that? I feel that. But here's the deal. If we get serious and really honestly start to clear the clutter that is in the way of fully trusting God. The breakthrough that will happen here, the lives that will be changed, the lost family members that you've been praying for that will be saved, the sick that will be healed will be unprecedented, because God will be with us. So, what will it be? If you can't trust him, go do something else. But if you can trust him, then what are you gonna change in your life? Our Father, I pray this morning as we process the word of God, I pray that we will not allow you to please, Lord, don't let this leave us. Don't let this be um, an interesting retrospective on a life of Jephthah. This is the life of a Canadian. This is us. This is the life of a Calvary Baptist church member. Oh God, I pray that you, because you've put us in the story, I pray that you would... Be faithful to complete this story in us as you've promised in your word. For your glory and your grace, oh God. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I think God is up to in our lives. The the woman who drove that airport limousine's name is Monique. And Monique drove the most important airport trip of her life because she was in the car with one of God's servants who made time to tell her about Jesus. And that's what God wants to do in our lives. You know, we may have long ago put Jesus at the center of our lives, but we've kept adding stuff all around him so it's all packed in now. We got no room to do anything that Jesus wants us to do. We've got no resources left to do anything that Jesus calls us to do. He's calling us to a big mission, a big ministry, a a big reach into Oshawa and Whitby and Curtis and on. Because there are a lot of Monique's out there who would listen to the claims of Christ if we were able to go and tell her. So I trust as we close in prayer this morning that we'll allow God to speak into our hearts and our minds. What are the things that we need to systematically offload so that we can trust God alone? He's telling you right now what those things are. Those props. Those other securities. Those things that you're relying on that aren't God wants to be the only one and then break forth from your life in ways that you never imagined our father and our God as we stand before you we invite you to put into our mind and into our hearts what needs to be dealt with the things that we're propping up our trust things we're relying on that aren't you The fact that we don't trust you for the good things that you want to give us, the fact that we don't have room for you or for the ministry, for the mission, to invest in the things of God, oh God, I pray that you would shake us up, that we might go forward with great strength and power from the Spirit of God. For Jesus' sake, I pray.